Hello and welcome to Room Escape Divas, your podcast on everything escape rooms. Today, we are excited because we have Shannon McDowell who wrote a paper, a very complicated paper where she took <laughs> surveys and like, it's, it's academic. It was like a real thing as opposed to things I do in the world, which is just me throwing things into a text document and hoping somebody will listen to me. No, this one, we got opinions of players and their accounts of cultural bias in escape rooms. <laughs> you make My that sound so Skull. much more exciting. <laughs> yeah, it is super exciting. It is. My name is Errol. I'm Amanda. And we have Shannon McDowell, as we said. Welcome, Shannon. Hello. Thanks for asking me. Oh, Yay. you're welcome. Well, you know, actually, have we, I know we've had you on before, but I don't know if we've, have we had you on have you? for your paper? I thought we, or maybe I just talked to you about it a lot. No, you, you've <laughs> talked to me about it a lot. And yeah. I, when the paper is done, then I'll talk about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they, for some reason, I just thought we've had you on before. We must have had you on here before, haven't we? No. I mean, I could always just check, but. It I don't seems, think so. No, no okay. we've we've um we've recorded like we play we play tested your game. I remember that. Oh yeah. And we talked and we interviewed it probably feels like you were on the podcast because we did interview with you as yes. one of your we were one of your um uh subjects in, in the exactly, paper. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> That's good, because I am I was worried that all of a sudden it's like, you know, it'd be great to talk to would be Shannon McDowell. And then, well, I might have just said Shannon because... To be fair, I think night. Shannon would have said, didn't I already talk to you about this in a podcast episode? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I would have remembered that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. I just forget everything. I don't know. It's like, you know, it's like there's nothing wrong with having Shannon on again, though. So we could do that, you know, especially when it gets published in your journal. But for now, or not your journal, and published in journal. Ah, now, journal. I guess what we could do is talk about maybe you can give us a brief overview of what you wrote. And then maybe or maybe you should do a brief overview of who you are, because we know who you are. <laughs> but you know, our listeners may not. So I am a research associate at Wilfrid Laurier University, which is in Brantford, Ontario, Canada. And yeah, I was hired specifically to do research cultural bias in escape rooms. So my position is funded by Red Bull and that was all part of the uh, Red Bull Mind Gamers Escape Room World Championship, which is designed by a team of Laurier students, or was the last two were. Right, so. wait, did we have you on, we didn't have you on the podcast talking about that? No. No, because we weren't allowed to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right, you weren't allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> Just for some reason, or maybe every, when we did our interview, well, I mean, when you, because as you said, we surveyed people, and I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but I do remember, maybe I just talked to you for a long time about that, because I was just naturally interested, and then I just <laughs> thought it was an interview. Maybe that's it. it maybe. That. It could have been that. Anyway. I would have remembered editing it, I think, <laughs> as well. There are it's, many checks yes. and balances in yeah, place. Yeah. And those checks and balances are put, aren't put into place by me, that's for sure. They're put into place <laughs> by far more responsible people than myself. Actually, it was really interesting. I do remember when Scott first put out the call for a researcher that this needs to be done. And yep. 
Yeah. And just to uh, just to um, clarify, that is Scott Nicholson. We, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. As opposed to just you know Scott. Adams. <laughs> your your pal Scott. Yeah. My pal Scott. <laughs> well, Scott can still be my pal Scott. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should just refer to him now as my pal Scott. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so your pal Scott. That's that's who he is <laughs> for the rest of time. <laughs> Poor Scott. I'm sure he'd enjoy that. Yeah. Although if you t- if you take a look at our inverse genius or our room escape Divas website, he's just all over the the top banner. So he is our pal Scott. Anyway, there sorry. He put out he put out a call and you applied, and there were thousands of applicants. And no, not that many. <laughs> and they chose you because you're amazing. Errol in his head is constructing so. the anime contest that like happens in all animes yeah. where it's this this doesn't matter what the topic is it's this super intense contest with many you know monologues and speeches and, and well you know i had to like beat an escape room with the fastest time and yeah, yeah. No, not really <laughs> and they, did, did they dump you into this huge ballroom all at tables and you had to come up with like amazing puzzle designs and escape experiences and then, i uh, wish actually yeah. that would have been a fun <laughs> <laughs> and then they just threw one to you in another language to see how oh, you would deal with fun. that. Oh. And, oh. Well. and then yeah. you got, so you got hired and you spent mm-hmm. how long uh, researching for this paper? Um, so I'm coming up on two years uh, in this position and it was, it was a series of projects that led to this. So oh. I, I've done a few, I did a media guide for uh, media in escape rooms. So if you're putting out introductions or if you have cutscenes in the room, how to format that so that people from different cultures will have a greater understanding. Mm. And uh, that was mostly for the, the uh, World Championship Games. And then I've also been assisting with, you know, the student projects, students at Laurier, get hired to build escape rooms for nonprofits and companies and stuff like that. So I've been working a bit with them and on some of those projects. And But yeah, so it's been about, well, I guess, almost a year and a half because I started interviewing um, competitors at the uh, World Championships last April, April 2019. Yeah. And, and that would make sense considering that you had to help build and design the game for Red Bull, which is international, you'd have to keep in mm-hmm. mind any type of cultural bias. Yep, there were, sneak in. I believe, competitors from 20 different countries, 20 or 20 different countries competing. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it's a lot of languages and cultural assumptions that you're trying to eliminate from the game so that everyone has an even playing field for a a world championship. So what's the official title and the, what is it, the synopsis or the, for this paper? So it's called Players Accounts of Cultural Bias in Escape Rooms. And the goal of this paper, without reading out the entire abstract, because you don't want to hear that, uh, you can read it in the paper yourself when it's published. My goal was to investigate incidences and experiences of cultural bias in escape rooms, um, particularly by players who have played escape rooms on multiple continents, 
but multiple countries as well. And then the idea was to categorize those experiences of cultural bias to try and come up with a model for evaluating them. And then also figuring out how those experiences affected a player's enjoyment of the game. So, you know, was it a positive experience with all of these cultural references or was it a negative experience or did they not care? Um, and just see how that all, you know, came out. Wow. And how many people were you able to survey? Because I guess it would be really difficult to find players who have spanned multiple continents, especially when you get east and west, right? Yeah, exactly. So we ended up with 33 interviews that made it into the final uh, paper, the final study. So, and those were all about half hour interviews that I did um, over video call, like over Zoom or Skype. And uh, some of them were in person when I was actually in the same room as people. So about 33 people um, from four different continents. Cool. And you said that there were 33 people that made it into the study itself, or at least the interviews. Did you conduct a lot of interviews um, on top of that? No, not a lot more. There were just a few that didn't make it in because um, either group interviews where one person didn't really speak. um, So I didn't have any data from one person, things like that. If I had multiple people in one interview at a time, sometimes they were just counted as one person if they you know if you've got a husband and wife who have every single escape room they've done they've done together they've had all the exact same experiences it's it doesn't make sense to count them as two different people right i know the terpicas have a similar similar challenge because they want to find people who've played different escape rooms across you know to comparison you know if Mm -hmm. we say ah this escape room in china is the best in the world but Nobody has played it to compare it to like, oh, this one in the Netherlands is the best. So, well, not the best, like one of the top ones. It's hard to find the linking people that would say, you know, which one is better or not. So how did you go about even finding these people? Uh, Well, through the Escape Room Enthusiast Facebook group and the Slack chat. (laughs) That's basically (laughs) it. And also, of course, the Red Bull um, escape room world championship competitors. That was basically my my target right there is finding people who had done lots of escape rooms. You know, that's a good question. Actually, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. How did Red Bull find competitors to do their world championship? Do they just put out an ad and then everybody just applies? So what they do is they set up the initial qualifier, I guess, or I forget what they call it, um, is a computer game. So people qualify, they can qualify on the computer. And then they also set up, um, they called it the cube. And it was for teams of four people. And it was essentially a computer game that you're playing cooperatively. Um, They set it up on college campuses in the different countries that were participating. That was basically it is if you were in the escape room grapevine, (laughs) you heard about (laughs) it. Um, And that was the competitors were a mix between escape room enthusiasts who had done lots of rooms and knew this was coming up. And uh, the other bunch of people who were competing were a lot of 
university and college students who did it because it was on their campus and it looked like fun. Oh, so, right, right, right. So that's, and then the top competitors from those, the top scoring teams went on to be the, their country's champions. Sure, so that, that would be, you know, if, if you think about it, students aren't normally the, the, the escape room enthusiasts because escape rooms tend to be expensive. So. No, and there was at least one team um, that had never done an escape room before. Their very first escape room was the world championship. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Which team was that? Which country? Uh, India. Oh, wow. That is fun. Actually, they may have done, I think they, they may have done one in London yeah. before they competed. Oh, but, uh, that's so fun. Oh, my gosh. I'm now imagining the, the Ready Player One scenario in my head of just these cubes sitting on campus and no one knows why they're there. <laughs> it's not true. They probably did. It's just, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. So when you went about, um, so what were some of the questions you had for people when, when you were trying to learn about cultural bias in escape rooms? So a lot of the questions were really open-ended and I didn't ask specifically about cultural bias because a lot of people don't know what that means and don't know what counts as cultural bias. So mostly I asked, when did they experience, like experiences in an escape room that they didn't have the background knowledge to understand? So example, when did you encounter a puzzle that you had the background knowledge to solve? Or when did you experience a puzzle that someone on your team could not solve because they didn't have right. the, the knowledge? So, and that generally brought out a lot of, you know, specifically um, not knowing how to use particular artifacts or not knowing certain trivia questions and knowledge or not understanding the language you used, um, various examples like that. And so then from there, we were able to categorize them. And then of course, follow-up questions like, how did this impact your enjoyment of the game? You know, what would the game have been like if this puzzle wasn't there or was replaced with something else? Was there so. a common one or did you find out, you know, a common cultural bias that people ran into? Common I mean, among language. everyone? Well, oh, maybe. I mean, or, you know, not so much uh, something that's super specific, but categorically. So the most reported incident was um, in the knowledge category. So I everything, all the puzzle examples were divided up into five categories. So there was Ooh. language, which is um, spoken and written language, both. And then symbols, which is divided into um, gestures, icons, and artifacts acting as symbols. Um, norms, which is norms makes up, there's a lot. You've got folkways and mores and taboos, uh, rituals, and then genres, which is a very specific one to escape rooms. Um, I didn't, we had to add that because there was no place for genres anywhere in any other sociological study like this. Artifacts was another category. So that's things like sensory artifacts, um, like smells or tastes or sounds, recreational artifacts, tools, um, media, those kind of things. And then knowledge. And knowledge was the most commonly reported category. And that consists of trivia and riddles. 
um, again, a category very specific to escape rooms because there's not a lot of places other than maybe IQ tests or standardized testing where you would see knowledge and cultural bias in that knowledge. Generally, uh, of the 33 interviews you had, like what was uh, what were the most continents that someone might have visited in that case? Four. Four. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> let me see. Yeah. So we had, yeah. So four people that we interviewed um, had visited four continents. Oh, wow. That's cool. So th- I'm, I'm sure they had a lot to say about their different experiences and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was one of the interesting correlations we found is that the more continents someone had played escape rooms on, the more incidences they reported. So, and it's very interesting because we had people who had played hundreds of rooms, but maybe only on one or two continents, and they still reported less incidences on average than a player who played on four continents and had less rooms. Um, Like, how many escape rooms are allowing trivia? Good grief. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot. Well, but there's a lot that counts as trivia, right? That you may not realize because you have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. For example, does a day start, does like the weekday, do they number Monday as zero or Sunday as zero or what? And that is a cultural bias Uh, right there. Darn it. I hate that one. (laughs) (laughs) The one that I had that I think happened after you interviewed me was was when we went to New Orleans and uh, played a room and we didn't realize that in the U- in certain parts of the U.S. it's called Rochambeau instead of um, rock, paper, scissors is what we know yeah, it yeah. as. And, and so we were sitting there being like, why does it just keep, like that was our clue was like Rochambeau and, and we had no clue. And, uh, and, <laughs> And they've and they've had enough enthusiasts through that room that they knew that it was going to be an issue, so they were already prepared for a hit with a hint. Uh, That's great. That's yeah. Great. <laughs> so, but it was it was funny because like immediately in my head I thought, oh, I wish that it happened before Shannon's interview because I could have told her all about it. <laughs> well, yeah. you would have added the stats for recreational for- artifacts because um, <laughs> games were actually one of the highest reported too, like especially within the artifacts category, people who encountered games that they had no idea how to play and didn't know the rules of. Well, what about, oh yeah, actually, someone, I remember the game of darts and you would think that would be something that's North American. Well, it's not North American, but at least maybe Western world. And I had no idea what the rules are. What, what, what about uh, nursery rhymes? Where does that fall under? So nursery rhymes, depending on how it's used, would probably be under knowledge. knowledge? Um, If you need to know the nursery rhyme in order to solve the puzzle, like if it's a blank space or something, Uh, um, or if it's, they're using it as a riddle or um, there's a lot of puzzles that count under multiple of these categories. So it really depended on on where the cultural bias was in the puzzle as to how it was uh, recorded. You know, the funny thing about Rochambeau, man pants, you told me that story. And then you brought it up again, and I completely forgot what it meant. 
again. Oh, so, you know, you. Uh, yeah, like, I know. Oh, I've yeah. mentioned it on this podcast before, and we've mentioned it in the community meetups too. I think. So and this I've is forgotten it every single time. Well, that's good though. It means that it's a fresh new story for you to hear. Well, no, no. I remember the story, and but I've forgotten what it was, what it meant every single time. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember the story. It just makes it me think of the Hamilton song now. I, I same like when I heard the lyric in in Hamilton, I was like, oh, and and I was like, now I need to know what what is Rochambeau? Is it a place? I think it's a place. I don't know. Yeah, that's some significance. I don't know. I'm not American. I don't know the history, so I'm like, <laughs> I will find out though. Yes. Yep. So, uh, so one question I had for you because you you've written the paper. It hasn't it hasn't been published yet, right? So No, not yet. Yeah. But since you've written that paper, we've had this little thing called COVID-19 crop up. And as a direct result of COVID-19, we've had escape rooms around the world pivot to remote escapes. And I know that it's given me the opportunity now to play escape rooms around the world that I would otherwise not have been able to play. So have you been watching this and thinking, oh, a bigger test group, potentially? Yes. Well, as it happens, <laughs> we are, we're currently waiting for approvals back before we can send out a survey asking players who've played remote escape rooms about their experiences. Um, because oh, cool. I suspect that's going to be a lot bigger audience because, yeah, like, how do you play escape rooms during a lockdown? You play them over video and a lot of them are going to be in other countries. And yeah, I, think I haven't it's played be a lot. Sorry, I haven't played a lot. But the ones I have played that have been in other countries, I haven't run into too many problems, surprisingly. And that's great. You know, and if that's the case, I want to hear that, too, because it's. I strongly suspect that like a lot of the rooms and owners that put in the effort to putting their rooms online or creating rooms for video players, like players to play over chat, they're going to be higher quality anyway, or at least they'll have put the effort in. And over the course of playing with players from all the different countries, they're going to work out a lot of those issues. You know, if you have players from, North America who are constantly saying, I don't know what that is, I don't know what that is, then probably you're going to adjust your puzzles so that they don't have that problem. I know that one technical issue that's come up, I don't know if it's a cultural bias, but it's funny when we'll find a clue and it's indicating that we should call a phone number and we're playing a room in England. And so we're all like looking around at each other. Does anybody have the ability to call England? Uh, Like that kind of thing. But... Um, that's more technical than it is cultural. Yeah. Recognize uh, it as a phone number. It's it's just, um, excuse me, I don't have a long distance plan. I mean, that's the cultural thing of it is because I don't necessarily know the format of other phone numbers around the world. So when I see them, I'm like, what? oh, it's a phone. Like you just, I see the plus sign in front of it and my right. mind goes there. So I'm like, all right, that's, that's what it is. I just think <laughs> I'm too cheap to make phone calls that are long distance. <laughs> Usually what it is, it's like, and then that, that happens a lot in ARGs as well. You have to think to yourself, wait, are we yeah. making this for someone that might call from North America or anywhere? 
Yeah. I know their biggest problem, too, is trying to have a game that fits in a time zone that they can do. Right, man, pans? Yeah, so the <laughs> I, I, I think I've mentioned this uh, in our community meetups, but and I don't know if I've mentioned it on podcast, but for instance, my team, my remote team, so I have a remote team now. One person's in Australia, one's in England. Uh, I'm here, and then, like, yeah, sorry, two of them in Australia. And then one day we played a game in L.A. So it's already a nightmare kind of coordinating and somebody always has to lose out on time zones uh so one the one in la the the game was at 11 30 p.m eastern standard time i was up at 2 30 a.m uh our time uh the person in australia uh or the person in england was up at like 7 a.m or 8 a.m their time um and then the person in australia was like i think uh yeah, it was the following day. Uh, it was like 14 hours ahead. So they were like, you know, also late night the other the next day. Or they were in the afternoon. I'm sorry. They were in the afternoon uh, the following day. So like it, we were just like spanning an entire 12-hour period uh, <laughs> through, through four different time zones. It was insane. <laughs> I am not coherent enough at 2 a.m. to play an escape room. I, I gave that. Luckily, the escape room we were playing, which was Miss Jezebel, was not one that necessarily needed coherent thought. You know, it was one <laughs> where you could goof around a lot. But there were definitely points in the room where we were like, oh, I'm like, I am, you know, one of our teammates was like, go, go to the left. And the guy would turn to the left. She goes, no, no, left. And we're like, he is going left. She's like, oh, it's so early. Um, I meant right, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So have you had a chance? I, because I know that you've traveled a bit, especially with Mind mind Bull Gamers. Red Bull Mind Gamers. Good job, <laughs> Mind Bull. It sounds like some crazy anime enemy. Mind Bull is coming. Yeah, um, that, that too. But have you had a chance to experience... Any cultural bias in the games you've played when you played across the oceans? Sure, I have. Um, although it's funny because so I did play some games in um, the UK when I was there. Um, but the funny thing is, is I was raised by a very British family, so because so we spoke. I grew up speaking more British English than I did, you know. American English and then you know learned American English when I went to school and so there were phrases and words being used um, in the the British games that I was like so I was playing with Scott and a whole bunch of strangers and I was like find this find this we need to know this and Scott's like I don't know what that means because of course he's American and so and I was going oh right American term it's this and he's like oh okay <laughs> so yeah there was some of that um it's very interesting to come across and I don't notice you don't notice them as much I think unless you have a teammate who experiences it or you know doesn't if you're having problems with something and then a teammate's like, no, it's clearly this, then you're like, oh, it's me that's the problem. Uh, yeah, I, I think I told you about this one in the interview when I went to the Netherlands and things that I take for granted, which is that I'm used to having to memorize both date formats in my head and adjust to them depending on if I'm looking at an American date or 
the date yeah. range that the date format that the rest of the world uses uh, is when we had an American in our group and he came to the lock and it was a date that had to be put in and uh, and he said it wasn't working but it was because he was using the American date format as opposed to the European one and it was like I took for granted because I was like are you doing month day or day month and he looked at me like why would I do day month and <laughs> like, that's oh, what the yeah. rest of the world uses <laughs> yeah yeah. 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 There's a lot of things like that. And if you don't travel a lot, it's, or work with people from other countries, it's very, very difficult to know what you don't know. Um, so especially as, you know, designers, people who are designing the escape room puzzles, that's, you know, that's part of the definition of cultural bias in escape rooms is just the designer assumes a degree of common knowledge based on their own cultural understanding. But of course that common knowledge isn't common everywhere in the world. Or even for people from different socioeconomic classes, different education levels, different ages. Yeah. You know, common knowledge is different. We're playing um we're playing a scrap game next week and it's actually in Japan. Uh I had to oh. Yeah, I went to the website, I played I paid in yen um and so it'll be interesting because like they've designed it clearly for an international audience it was designed to be remote and the the website's all in english and everything and uh but as far as like location i'm like it was designed in japan first and foremost so i'll be interested to see how that plays out yeah that would be really interesting uh some of the most interesting examples i had came from um the asian players oh yeah <laughs> yeah just some of and or from european and north american players or australian players who had played in asia that's what i was gonna ask so, yeah was it so was it like yeah north american or european players who'd gone to asia or was it um both ways around both ways um, around it yeah. was interesting seeing the interpretation of what i would consider common knowledge by someone who it isn't and then right the other way around too is their encounters uh, like North American and European encounters with Asian cultural norms and stuff like that, that they never considered would be part of a puzzle. For example, do you have any examples? Sure. So, well, one kind of common example, like a lock, you know, normally we see here um, a lot of escape rooms will in their introduction will go through do you know how this type of lock works here here's how it works here's how you reset it that kind of thing well uh one player reported a room that they played in singapore i believe where their every apartment building in the country essentially has the same type of lock to open doors and it's like you have to type in a code and put in a key and turn and like it's it's the same type of lock that everyone uses to get into their homes. So they didn't even introduce it. They figured, well, anyone playing in Singapore will have encountered this lock before. Well, not tourists. So, you know, oh, that was one example. Yeah. Um, other interesting example in Japan, of course, it's common to take your shoes off um, before entering a house. You know, there's, they have the, I forget what it's called, the little entryway where you take your shoes off and then there's usually a step up into the rest of the house. And uh, so there was 
an escape room with that as a puzzle. You walk into the escape room and you have to take your shoes off before continuing. Mm. Oh, Arrowwood would rock at that room. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd like that. But yeah, um, this was told to me, I believe, by an American player who doesn't typically take their shoes off when entering a house. So... <laughs> Cultural differences, no shaming. I know, I'm teasing. But yeah, there's there's a lot of really interesting examples. Examples around taboos were really interesting. The norms were my favorite, if you couldn't tell. Um, those were all the, the most interesting, I thought. Like what kind of taboos? So taboos around um, touching certain objects. Uh, for example, weapons. A lot of rooms in the U.S. involve handling guns or knowing how to use guns. And there are some people in some countries where you don't touch guns. That's, you don't do that. You know, they're dangerous. And so players are hesitant to interact with a gun as part of a puzzle. There's like, for example, players encountering language in a room that they would consider to be offensive, whether it's considered a slur in their home country or politically incorrect or so in that case they're like is this the answer to the puzzle because this seems wrong would they act do they actually want us to say this (laughs) so you know those are things that they they make people pause as they're playing and consider is this actually something the game wants us to do because it's not something they're necessarily comfortable with. Yeah, I wonder how it comes to even physical touching. I know in North America, yes. the, there, there's a whole taboo about, you know, physical touching, like touch haunts and whether you're allowed to touch the players, mm-hmm. different things like that. How is it? But is that the same in other countries? I don't know. It's not. Personal space is very different from one culture to another. And that, that's an example that came up in a few interviews. That comes under the folkways uh, part of norms, which is folkways are informal standards of behavior. So things that aren't like codified, like laws, but like table manners and personal space are all those kind of informal standards of behavior. And yeah, personal space differs. That's actually a set category where Russia does relatively well in because you can, I've heard players tell me about rooms in Russia where you got a form to fill out and you got to choose the level of intensity that you wanted your room to be. And they told you what that meant. So for example, high intensity rooms meant you would be shoved around and they would drag you places and they would or, you know, there would be a... Sorry, they would do what to your face? They would yell in your face. Oh, oh okay, sorry. I thought they would do things to your face. Oh. No. <laughs> I'd be all well, maybe, I don't know. That <laughs> might be fine. I'd be, I would want to be dragged around. This guy's... I don't, I don't know if people would... Like, I think they would probably opt out of it after after a bit with Errol, because he would just get too... He would get too into it. He would just drag be screaming. Me. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted this zombie to drag me around, did. but I didn't. Oh, no. that'd be great. Yeah, because they, because in America they have personal mm-hmm. space, and there's exactly. like liabilities involved with touching a participant in your 
in your entertainment venue. Yep. Yeah. And that's not the same in other countries. And no. for places, escape rooms that don't have that kind of choice for players and don't warn them ahead of time that, you know, I, uh, one player commented on a team member who was like severely put off of a room because it was a very aggressive interaction with the actors and they did not enjoy it. Basically, you know, being frog marched through the facility and um, they were like, why are you touching me? So was there a case where um, you mentioned like it worked both ways around in which like say uh, somebody from an Asian culture did a North American or European escape room and there was just something in there that just made no sense to them and, and it was like assumed knowledge? Oh, of course. Yeah, um, a lot of the the cross-continent differences had to do with um, games, recreational items that people from that continent would grow up playing with as a child. Like that, you Nintendo. Know, exactly. Um, there was one where they had to pass a level of snake. You know, the little oh. game that used to be on, I think, like oh, Nokia yeah. cell phones? Yeah. Oh, and that was like... Yeah, that's a really old one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they had to pass a level of snake and not a single person on their team had any idea what this game was. Uh, yeah, so that was, that's an issue. Sorry, was this, was this well, within the Asian culture they didn't know what snake was or within the North American culture they didn't know what snake was? I don't remember the cultural background. Of, yeah. I believe they were raised in an Asian country. Oh, is, okay. I think most of the team had an Asian background. And they but didn't see Tron, so that was it. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, but also um, genre misunderstandings. So, or, you know, because there's different stories told on different continents. And uh, one of the examples was a magician room centered around Harry Houdini. And the person playing this room had no idea who Houdini was, didn't understand the Western culture of musician or of uh, magicians and magic tricks, didn't quite know what they were missing in the room, but assumed that they were missing things because they just didn't get the genre. Yeah, I wanted to ask more about about genre and, and what that actually means. So genre is like literally just, you know, the theme like the particular theme of the room or a genre that is common to that culture, such as like magicians and Halloween is big here, but it might not be as big in other countries. Yeah, uh, sort of. So let me find this. Yeah. So genre, we define that as common narratives and tropes associated with story themes. Okay. Yeah. So things that, you know, the vampire mythology, you know, most right. people, in Western culture have the Dracula background of, you know, a stake through the heart and associated with bats and that kind of thing. Whereas someone from China wouldn't necessarily grow up with that. You know, they've got, uh, what is it? I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but Jiangxi, which is kind of like the Chinese equivalent of vampire type creatures. Yeah. I even have stories from when I lived in South America of the, the indigenous peoples there have a certain uh, a type of vampire creature as well, but 
completely different mythology than what the Western one is. And and what are you hoping uh, escape room owners, designers, players will get out of this paper once it's published? Or what, what are some of the outcomes that you hope for in this? One of the main things I was looking for was, is experiencing these cultural biases in escape rooms a negative experience or not? And it turns out overwhelmingly, yes, it is essentially essentially a negative experience for players. They don't enjoy ha- pausing their game to have to figure out whether this is something they know or not, or that they should know. So from here, like I'm currently writing a follow-up paper to this actually, that mm. is how to minimize cultural bias in your escape rooms. So it uses the same types of categories that I use in this paper, but kind of gives examples and solutions for designers and owners to help minimize it. And especially with remote escape rooms being so popular right now, it's a great way to make sure that you can attract and keep an international audience. And do you think, uh, just out of curiosity, this might be too deep of a question, but uh, do you think that there might be instances, though, where Um, having some cultural bias in the room could be a positive experience, almost like a learning experience, because experiencing other cultures is good. It sucks when it does, you know, halt your game, like, like halt your game so hard and and you get frustrated trying to figure out something. But um, at the same time, there's the flip side of it where, where you're actually learning another culture's practices and that kind of thing. Yeah, so there's, okay, so there's two levels to that question. (laughs) The first level is, is this paper primarily is only referring to recreational games. So there's a whole other section of escape rooms that are educational based, whose purpose is to teach rooms. Um, For example, oh, I forget the name of it. There's a room in uh, New York that is meant to teach players about the Jewish faith and history. So that is completely, every single puzzle has a cultural element, but they use it to teach players. So you actually shouldn't need hints. You shouldn't need to know anything about the Jewish faith for to play that room. Um, there's also like corporate escape rooms, for example, or escape rooms based on licenses or intellectual property. So escape rooms based on movies those may or may not require specific knowledge. You know, Um, if it's based on a movie, they're going to, of course, include as many things about that movie or about that video game um, as they can because they're trying to appeal to fans. So someone who doesn't have that knowledge may not enjoy it as much. Um, So then the second part of the question, so those rooms in particular don't even need to worry about this stuff because they're appealing to a very specific market. The second part of that is, yes, if you want to include cultural stuff in your room strictly, that's strictly for recreational purposes, like it's not overall an educational room, then there are a lot of ways to just mitigate how, how players experience the cultural bias. So for example, Mm -hmm. environmental storytelling, the example that I used of having to take your shoes off when entering a Japanese house, well, All you need to do there to clue players is to have a shoe shelf with some shoes on it right in the entranceway. And that is a great example where people will see that and say, oh, well, maybe I should take my shoes off because we're in the house now or have slippers right there 
and then say, oh, well, we're supposed to put the slippers on. So take off your shoes and put the slippers on. You know, there's ways that you can have objects or directions in the room that subtly lead players into learning the cultural elements without having it be a strictly educational room. Oh, that's a really good point. Like imbuing things into the environment. I, I think about things like uh, just because it's been a big discussion in the video game world uh, with um, localization of games. And yeah. there's lots of debates going on there right now about how, how much do you want to localize this? Do you want to erase the culture entirely from the, you know, and, and, um, and there's, and there's arguments for and against and both of them work. And, uh, and I think about some of the video games I've played. So Errol and I played one together um, called detention and it was a, a Taiwanese game. Um, and oh, it was, yeah, a it was time a, ago. a long time ago. And it was a scary one, um, wow. but it was, <laughs> <laughs> To me, it was scary, okay? It was meant to be a horror game. It was designed as a horror game, and there were horror elements in it, yes. I know, teasing you. Yeah, there were certain things in there where, but that one did a good balancing act, like you said, of like imbuing just enough clues into the environment for you to at least make a connection to know where something might be more of a... Uh, like, this, like, this is something really specific to the Taiwanese culture, or there was something about the Taiwanese history that I clearly did not know and that I was missing out on, but there was just enough in it in the game for me to pick up on the clues and put a story together in my head and then Wikipedia after to see to see what was going on. Yeah, so at that's that time. Also, if you think about more appreciation of the story as opposed to like finishing the game too, <laughs> where it's, it's probably more important in the escape room because if you can't even finish the game because you don't understand something yeah. where... Like, whether mm -hmm. we watch shows or play a video game, if it's more for understanding what on earth is happening, also also important. We yeah. watch a lot of foreign shows, so it's sometimes we realize we're not appreciating <laughs> what's happening because we don't understand the culture behind it, or we don't even... It, it's nice when they explain colloquialisms or... Uh, <laughs> Or yeah, there there will be moments where they'll say something and there won't be a subtitle like definition of it, or there's there's no good English equivalent to whatever they're saying. So it'll be some direct translation is like, this is some sort of yeah colloquial colloquial. I can't say the word, colloquial. Uh, darn it, <laughs> failed. We're not helping you. <laughs> no, like somebody finished the word for me. Did a good job, man. Pan. Oh, no. you know, there was a fun game my daughter was doing in her class, and it was to teach because she is learning how to be an intervener for deaf-blind people, people who are both deaf and blind. And so she had to learn how to sign different types of colloquial phrases, and there are a lot of them, like, you know, oh, no, I can't even come up with one at the top, the top of my head. What would you say, Eto? Tall drink of water. Tall drink of water. Yeah, maybe that. Half, or Half a dozen. What is it? Six of one, half a dozen of another. The one yeah. that I hate. Yeah. <laughs> but then you'd have to, they would actually not translate that. Actually, can you give me an example of one of those? Did I not? No, I, I had my headphones on. I couldn't hear you. Oh, 
Oh, you did say tall drink of water. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow. I heard echo. You just didn't. Oh, oh because <laughs> you're listening on my mic. I didn't hear tall drink of water. Okay. But, you know, what would you sign for tall drink of water? You wouldn't do the drink. You'd just say good looking guy or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's why Mad Pants went there first. And so did my daughter for some strange No, reason. she went there first. <laughs> I just repeated her. Well, I'm it. Anyway, it was a fun exercise because you'd have to think how to explain that using sign language. And then you'd mm-hmm. have to be restricted to what you had there. And it's like, oh, wow, this is hard, you know? Yeah, that's why translation in escape rooms can be really hard if language is required to solve a puzzle. Because if you're using like wordplay or riddles, those translate, right? Um, I had multiple players tell me about a single game. This one game, I think, came up in three or four interviews. (laughs) So enough people had played this game where there was wordplay that did not translate. So anyone playing it in English, and I'm I'm sure you both have played this game, so I won't mention which one, but... Yeah, it's there's there's no way to translate it. So people would just come across the untranslated words in the puzzle, even though the rest of the game would be translated to English for them. Yeah, no, it's it's stuff like that where yeah, I'm sure um, these findings are going to be so valuable, right? Where it's like you know, if especially if people from across the world are going to be playing your game, it's so important to right. to make sure they can play it. <laughs> Well, and even just to make people think a little more about what puzzles they're putting in their game, because this research has made me think a lot more about what puzzles I'm designing and how culturally biased they are. Uh, Just to be like, oh, wait, I included this in my game. Would someone from the other side of the world know what that meant? You know, and just is this symbol universal? You know, does red mean stop? in every country of the world. No, right. it doesn't. So, you know, does green mean go? No. <laughs> so it's <laughs> figuring true. out those different things that you take for granted because it's so universal where you live, but then trying to translate that for other people. Yeah, yeah. like what about poison symbol? Is that universal? What are so, universal symbols? Well, that's, um, that's a ISO symbol. ISO standard. So, Sorry, you cut out for a second. So you were saying that there were a hundred and some countries that use, would make sense, the ISO standard symbols that there are, right? But people who don't work in industries that use those symbols still won't know them. If you haven't done WIMIS in a while. Good old (laughs) WIMIS. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, how do you feel then, like after interviewing the contestants with Red Bull and, and the Red Bull Mind Gamers then finished, um, how do you feel the success was with making a, an experience for them that anybody could play? I think the, they did a really good job. Um, both the students who designed the puzzles and the building team that implemented them, I thought it went pretty much as well as it could have. You know, there's always areas for improvement, but it was really good. And we had teams that had played the 2017 World Championship and then played again in 2019 who did see a vast improvement in oh, that's great. in cultural bias. So, yeah, it was it was nice to hear and 
it seemed to go relatively smoothly. So. Oh, great. If a, if an escape room owner wishes to look into designing their rooms to be as uh, accessible as possible and to remove that cultural, any cultural bias in there, what can they do to, uh, for resources? Uh, well, this paper will hopefully be published at some point, as well as the follow-up, which has more, um, more of a design guide and best practices for removing oh. cultural bias. Do you, do you have a complicated title for that paper too? Or has it not been made yet? Uh, I think the working title is like minimizing cultural bias in escape rooms. So oh, to be so fair, logical. the first one, the first one wasn't that complicated. <laughs> oh no, no, it wasn't. I, it was more along the lines of, I know that papers, academic papers. Compared to other academic long. papers <laughs> I've heard where it's like, <laughs> Yeah. where the paper is the title essentially and yeah <laughs> yeah but um scott and i also did a live stream that on the results from our study yes. and so that is linked on the bgn lab website so bgn lab alb.ca um, and also the i don't i think it's on the facebook page as well i'll see about linking it in the description too were there any surprises from the from the study when you did it? Yes, actually. One of the most interesting surprises. So almost universally, players reported negative or neutral experiences of cultural bias when they encountered in cultural bias in escape rooms. The only players who did not, who reported positive experiences, were all Americans. Oh, hey, look at that. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so it was very interesting. There was more a, I think, a sense of exploration and not taking it too seriously from players who reported positive experiences where they're like, they just enjoyed learning about the rooms and, you know, it wasn't necessary to win. So I thought that was really interesting is that it was only Americans or like North Americans who reported positive experiences. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shannon. It's been really interesting. Like I've been so interested in this paper and, and uh, it sounds like the results are, are very interesting to hear. And I can't wait to see how, um, how other rooms and escape room designers can use it to improve their own rooms and to make them more open to more players. Oh, thanks for having me because this was a, a lot of fun to talk about because I haven't really talked about my results with people yet besides the live stream we did. So, yay! You know, and now we, we didn't even delve too much into your game design background either. No, which is, which I didn't. I was, a, I was about to ask. So, yeah, you're also a game designer as well. Wow, and good if, job, man, Pans. And uh, I hold on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if people, um, if you would like people to find out where they can find out more about you, uh, is there a web page they can go to at all or a Facebook fan page of some sort? Oh, I'm not that special. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like all of my game design tips and updates on my games and things like that, I usually post on my Twitter account. So that's at Shannon Creates on Twitter. Great. 
We'll be sure to we'll be sure to link it in the notes. And yeah, once again, thank you so much. Are you and are you working on anything right now? And now I realize I'm asking more questions at the end. But <laughs> yeah, other than the second games? paper, yeah. Other than the second paper, game wise, are you working on anything? I am always working on things. <laughs> uh oh, uh oh, they're private things. So oh, now Ooh. I want to know. Uh oh. You've just you've just invoked an Errol's <laughs> interest. <laughs> <laughs> okay well thanks again and uh just a reminder to folks that we have community meetups for the remainder of august and uh 6 30 p.m eastern standard september, time probably and september probably because i don't have class on those nights so hooray i can still do them uh <laughs> whether i can edit this podcast during school we're gonna just going to see but uh probably yes um all right i'm gonna talk us out uh, Room Escape Divas has brought, been brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other fun podcasts just like this one. You can also email us at roomescapedivas at gmail.com. We love getting emails. And if you are using Twitter, you can use the hashtag redivas. And of course, like us on our face, Facebook page. Uh, we post a lot of things there, including I do streams every Tuesday. I'm trying to keep those up. And we'll see. Streams Feel of what? Just oh, you know, um, sorry. Like yeah. ASMR streams, yeah. you know, making oh, silent no. noises. No, that's weird. Or but what about those eating ones? What are those called again? Oh, I forgot the name of those eating ones. Yeah, that's weird too. I'm sorry, <laughs> young people. What? Uh, <laughs> what about chewing ice? Do you just chew ice? Oh, that's like the worst, <laughs> my worst possible nightmare. <gasps> We should do it then. I've told know? this to you multiple times, and yeah, then you sit there chewing ice, and then really? my my oh. spine just goes into spasms you know, when I, I hear the sound forget, of chewing no. ice. I'm not, I'm not trolling you on uh, purpose. I'm then. even thinking just, about it. It's well, just like, oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even doing this on purpose. I, I'm imagining you. it. I can feel oh, okay. the ice crunching in my crunchy, teeth, crunchy, and it's cold, yeah, and it's sensitive. What if, it's, what if we're eating the ice? Why, you, it's not you. I, I can't put my teeth in cold things. I just can't. See, that doesn't bother me. I know. Um, Imagine there's ice in there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I do streams <laughs> of uh, older adventure games. So I'm playing, right now I'm playing Gabriel Knight 2, The Beast Within. Uh, after that, Gabriel's a friend. A jerk. He is a jerk in this game. Um, and then after that, I think my friend wants to convince me to play Phantasmagoria, which I've never played. Uh, which I'm a little bit nervous about, but oh well. Well, I think when it comes to pixelated things, it's not really as scary. It's not the scary thing, it's the dying over and over again thing. Oh, you know, yeah. like old Sierra games. Yeah. That's where I'm like... Uh, and the ice chewing. Yeah. And the... Oh, anyway, thanks, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>